Old Man Podcast. That's too austere a name for something made of mirth and hot takes. Huh. Is that anything? I don't know. You picked the one um, that I didn't get a chance to see. Yeah, but I've so that one I'm going to say, yeah, that was great. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. Great start, everyone. Yeah, we did it. Great job, uh, Disney Desk crew, who yeah. existed this entire time and you guys just don't know about. Right, it's you, me, and Kiwi. I mean, honestly, she's our producer. She's been in on every session. Oh, yeah. She's she's an audio wizard. Um, right. And, of course, Binks handles audio editing, so if it's ever a little fuzzy, it's because it's a cat. Right, because there's literally cat hair on it, yeah. Yeah. I really, like, I've talked to her about, like, sanitizing her workspace because she knows how I feel about that, but uh, I digress. Well, she says she doesn't tell you how to do your job, so maybe you need to yeah. mind your business. Well, she doesn't tell me anything. She can't talk. Oh. Welcome to the Disney Desk, everyone. Carter here. And I'm Sydney. And we are doing a little bit of a unique topic this week. Um, You know, like, there's a lot of topics that I've wanted to cover for a long time that just don't really fit into necessarily, like, the themed months we do or, like, you know, in the hustle and bustle of, like, a particularly busy film season. We don't really get a chance to just sit down and discuss. And... We talk a lot about, like, oh, well, we're the Disney desk, and, like, we cover Disney primarily, but we also cover animation as a whole, and it feels like there's an avenue of animation, sort of outside of our sort of, like, big, like, three-ring circus tent that is, like, Disney and Warner Brothers and Paramount, etc., that we've never really gotten a chance to cover. Yeah. um, Today, and I guess this is kind of the first time we are venturing onto YouTube of all places for um, today's source material. Um, today we want to talk about independent animation or indie animation for short and kind of the culture of it, the people who make it, the people who love to engage with it and watch it and what kind of the potential of it or the purpose of it even could be. Yeah, you know, it is very interesting. Like, animation on YouTube has had such an interesting existence. It has right. be- technically been there the entire time. Right. Or at least as close to the entire time as you can get. Mm-hmm. And it has gone through a lot of different sort of phases, evolutions, metamorphosi. And in this era of, like, the big animation companies not necessarily doing what a lot of animation people want or animation fans want, mm-hmm. there has always been a sentiment of... You know, we need to develop independent spaces. We need to make it possible to exist outside of sort of the corporate sphere. Right. And we we are in the first era where that's felt like... Legitimate? Like, or legitimized? Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's one of the few times where it's felt like we've had some legitimate efforts to do that. Sort of right. Be, like, to do full-scale things that rival what you can get from... Right. Like other companies. And I suppose and a part of that is kind of how lucrative YouTube has pro- pro- proven itself. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm, as we talk about sort of the sort of recent renaissance of independent animation, I do think like a lot of the follies of these efforts or like the challenges or hurdles that like are always going to make it hard to achieve this are kind of going to become clear as we discuss them, I think. Yeah, definitely. We have a lot of fun little series to talk about. Hopefully we'll cover some of your favorites. Um, But before we begin, it is time for another Internet Minute. 
All right, so I have kind of an elaborate internet minute this week, one that kind of covers a lot of topics that I didn't know I wanted to talk about, but I finally have a shape and form to sort of present it to you all. As I've hyped it up to Sydney, this is the closest I've ever gotten to doing investigative journalism on this uh, show. So a lot of, as the Marvels has come out, there is a lot of guffawing and gruff and exhausting discourse. One, because again, it's the one with the ladies in it. But two, because of a lot of talk about is Marvel washed, is Marvel done? So a lot of like, a lot of discourse has been around a variety article. I want to pull up the actual title of the article itself. Um, the article is called Crisis at Marvel, Jonathan Major's Backup Plan, The Marvel's Reshoots, Reviving Avengers, and More Issues Revealed. So it is sort of a big sort of, sort of insider piece, allegedly, that kind of covers the last couple years of Marvel's phase four, phase five struggles. Um, particularly talks a lot about how the Marvels went through a lot of production problems of needing to do reshoots. Um, the sort of drama around Jonathan Majors and whether or not they are going to replace him or just replace the character of Kang with someone else. Um, and a lot of talk about, like, oh, we might bring back Robert Downey Jr., Scarlett Johansson. Um, the two, uh, like, points of this discourse that a lot of people have been really focused on are the talks about Blade, the movie, and um, Nina DaCosta, the director of Marvels. So there's a lot of sort of, like, palace gossip in this piece about Blade and how at some point a draft had him as, quote-unquote, the fourth lead behind a woman. Just very, very odd wording. And also talking about how Nina DaCosta was not present during post-production for this film. Now, a lot of people have, like, like a lot of, a lot of people have, like, declared this article fake news or debunked. And I don't, I don't really see it that way. I see it as more half-truths. Again, I, I think something important to remember is the news is not objective, no matter how hard you try, you can't really be objective with news because depending on your tone of voice, depending on how your presentation, depending on how you spin anything, it, it is going to be slanted in some way. Because, mm -hmm. like, all of these things are true in some extent, but they are mischaracterized. Like, the Marvel's reshoots, yes, but Marvel is famous for reshoots on top of the fact that, like, during a pandemic, it can, like, during this pandemic era, it's really hard. This is, like, one of the last films to really be in that deep pandemic era where filming anything was a fucking miracle. Um, mm. They talk about bringing Robert Downey Jr. and Scarlett Johansson back. Like, a lot of scoopsters have been like, yeah, there's always been discussion of that, because that's the whole point of a secret wars. That's right. the whole point of, like, a multiverse culmination thing. Someone who worked on a draft of Blade came out and said, like, hey, I mean, maybe something dramatic changed since I was off this project, but, like, the whole idea was it was Blade's daughter was a big character, but he was the main character. The, you know, the wording of that is very weird. And Nina Costa, well, one, a lot of people have just come out and said, like, hey, this is a totally normal thing for directors to do. Spielberg is famous for, like, working on three projects at once, like having one in post-production and one pre-production or, like, working on it. And she, even in her, like, press tour, because unfortunately she was the only one who could go on press tour for all of this, she came out and said, like, honestly, it was more of a problem of we moved the release date for this film th four times at some point I'm contractually obligated to go work on my next film. Mm -hmm. Like I'd signed up to do this thinking this process would be done already. You know, a totally, totally normal thing for, uh, 
you know, a director to do, especially one who's, like, hotly desired. So, like, yeah, is, a, is some of the stuff in this article true? Kind of, is where I would say. It kind of falls in a hazy middle ground, where Variety, for one reason or another, has decided to spin all of these things as wholly negative or in the most negative light possible. And I do think that's just interesting because, well, it's interesting for a number of reasons. But the piece of news that came out around the same time this came out is what kind of really, like, sort of perked my interest a little bit. Sorry, I'm pulling up the article now. Mm -hmm. Because this article came out around the same time this variety sort of um, gossip drama. I'm also going to link an article in this episode from... um, from Forbes that kind of talks about the same things this Variety article does, but kind of covers them in a more like industry-wide context and talks about like, hey, yes, the problems Marvel is facing now are problems that a lot of studios face. And it only stands out because Marvel was kind of like the face of the 2012 pre-pandemic box office, which was this like manic period of unprecedented box office growth. Like, this unprecedented period of, like, every IP being a potential billion-dollar idea. And now they're just regressing to the mean. And with that comes challenges. And Mm. the challenges that they faced during the pandemic and this whole industry faced in terms of, like, studios and executives gearing everything towards streaming only stands out because Marvel is the most public face of that. But anywho... Around the same time, a article from The Wrap came out. Um, Ike Perlmutter backs Nelson Peltz in renewal, renewed board seat push at Disney. Former Marvel chairman says he can no longer watch the business underachieve its great potential. So the briskest version of this is we've talked about Ike Perlmutter. He, is a, he used to be the head of Marvel Entertainment. He was the chairman. Um, he had a prominent position in the Disney company as a result. Um, he is famous for being... Like, he's famous for being a very reclusive billionaire. There's about three pictures with him, sort of hardline, hardline conservative, sort of famous for being very sort of regressive in his views. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was famously the one who really pushed against doing a Black Panther movie, against doing a Black Widow movie. Um, There are rumors that his, basically his logic, his damn near exact quote uh, when it was time to replace Terrence Howard with Don Cheadle uh, as War Machine was like, no one will notice the difference. Um, right. Uh, not a great guy for yeah, more reasons. <laughs> yeah, for more reasons than I would like to get in in this episode. But anywho, he, when Disney cut, decided to cut staff during, um, like he'd been slowly losing power to Kevin Feige for years, but like he got the boot during the pandemic in like these big sort of staff layoffs. It seemed like a clean way to just be like, all right, let's just clean yeah. up the company. Um he has recently granted um, Nelson Peltz, a friend of his, uh, power over his shares. He still has a lot of shares in the Disney company, um, about a $2.5 billion stake. Um, and basically, while he's insisting he's not pushing necessarily to get on the board, he is basically pushing for at more control at shareholder meetings. Um, now, I bet you're wondering who Nelson Peltz is. Nelson Peltz is the manager of a company called Tryan Fund. They, in their own words, are an activist hedge fund. So the idea is the Tryan company go, basically buys up shares of different companies and sort of pushes their vision for how the company should be run. They basically come in and tell the town, you know, they walk into town and tell it how it should be done. They are known for being like 
where like where something like Bain Capital, they come in, buy a bunch of shares, break the company into pieces and sell them off. This is more of like a political organization. They come in, buy a company, and then steer it toward more conservative policies. They have a huge share in all states. Every now and then you'll see an article about like companies they're investing in. Um, there's rumblings, and I wish I could source them better, that they like really push for a lot of like YouTube management groups. Um, and the Disney company has been in their eye for a while because this is the second time they've tried this. Back at the start of the year, they were really pushing a movement called, quote unquote, restore the magic, which I would see every now and then on my like feeds because I have a lot of Disney stuff. But basically, they're trying to sell it as Bob Iger has lost sight of what this company needs to be. We need to restore it back to what it was when Walt Disney was in charge, or at least that's their like pithy branding mm -hmm. for it. So basically what is happening here is um, this sort of conservative think tank is trying to ease their way into Disney. They are trying to basically use the recent box office and sort of stock fumblings of the Walt Disney Company, largely brought on by the strike, to steer the company in a more, let's say, traditional direction, if you will, a more conservative direction. And... I guess my point of doing all this investigative journalism is, like, why is the Variety article written the way it is? Who, like, Variety is a trade. It gets scoops from people inside the industry or adjacent to the industry and presents them as, like, news articles. Like, people use stuff like Deadline and Variety and Hollywood Reporter as a means of getting the story out that they choose to get out to shape news that will come out no matter what and shape it to a certain advantage point. And for me, the Variety article, like, I guess if I'm going to say one thing from all of this, it's like, when you see an article that, like, claims to have the answers, ask why are they telling you the answers like this? What do they mm -hmm. seek to gain from the answers like this? And for me, the Don't Variety article- have running beef with Variety? Yes, a little bit. Um, <laughs> Like, Variety... Oh, right, because their Disney 100 stuff sucked. Um, <laughs> like, for me, it's just so interesting that these two pieces of news came together because a lot of people noted that the Variety article was very, seemed very tilted toward the Marvel stuff that preached more diversity. And it's interesting mm. that that is happening at the same time where there is a renewed sort of anti-woke energy going on. Right. Uh, you know, I, I imagine, I can't believe we live in a time where people are quoting South Park to make fun of the fact that women are in films. It kind of makes me, yeah. we're not getting into that. I'm already going too long on this. But basically, <laughs> like, for me, the Variety article feels like it's coming from a lot of different places. One is that Marvel is still a big name that you can get clicks off of. So, of course, you're going to spin it as salacious drama. Right. Like, two... I do think as the strike rolls on, it's like we're running out of scoops, so we need something to talk about. But also, I think it's important to remember like that both in the Walt Disney Company and in the greater sort of media landscape, there are a lot of people who really, really did think after the 2016 election that that was a sign from the American people that they wanted to go back to traditional values that this era of quote-unquote forced diversity was over and we were going to get back to the center, which is to say the right, but for them it's the center. Right. And, right, like, the, the stuff Bob Chepik said when he basically signed his death warrant as the CEO of Disney, where he, like, 
shoved his foot in his mouth about don't the don't say gay bill. That, like, again, that is not exclusive to him. Right. Unfortunately, what's clear is a lot of people in the company feel that way. A lot of people are very annoyed that they keep getting lumped with the gay show or the, you know, the, the movie with the women in it. Like, mm-hmm. you know. And in the face of discovering for a lot, you know, for a lot of these guys, in the face of discovering that this change is emphatically untrue and people want more diversity in their media and enjoy diversity in their media. Right. They are not afraid to sort of goose the scale a little bit. They are not afraid to put their thumb on the scale a little bit and try to sway it to their way. And because at the end of the day, that's what happens if Peltz and Perlmutter get their way. Like that change will come. Yeah. And anything. And as I look at these sort of news stories, it's hard not to feel like they are trying to clear the path to get their way. Right. The only thing I wanted to say there is like, you mentioned something really quickly um, a couple minutes ago about like motivated by the strike. And like, isn't it interesting how many of these publications are kind of getting pantsed by the strike and so many Mm -hmm. actors like not being available are not literally doing nothing. Like um, something has been really revealing about these publications that cover Hollywood news um, and the certain things that they are willing to sort of invent. Yeah. Oh, no. It's, I mean, one thing that's very clear is the traits are not necessarily our friends. They are very, right. they are no friends they of the you. studios first, friends of the actors maybe second, and right. then sort of us third at best. If like, at all. It yeah. is disappointing to see how much water they carried for the studios, mm-hmm. which again makes the fact that they're doing a sort of, not a hit piece, because again, a lot of this is true to a degree. Again, right. it is... It is, obje- it is taking objective fact and spinning it. That's how you get news. Right. Um, but it's interesting that they've chosen this direction to tell the news in for me. Yeah. No, I and yeah, I get, feel that. And uh, yeah, I guess it's like very, in- for me, it's just like sitting down and one, trying to give a valuable lesson in like, you know, be critical of the news you get. Don't just take it at complete face value. Right. Remember that... Even the most "quote unquote" reliable news sources probably have some kind of an angle or means own. you want to take. Yeah, and this isn't like a "oh, don't trust the fake news" angle. Mm-hmm. This is more just a ask yourself the context in which this you're is being media told literacy. This. Yeah, yeah, media. Thank you, media yeah. literacy. And two, again, I, I again, I push back against the Homer accusations. I don't like being a Homer for the Disney Company. Sure. I don't even really like defending the Disney Company. Watching that wish that Wish had its premiere literally the night the strike ended and just thinking about how cool a party this could have been if they could have had all the actors there actually pissed me off. Like, I was sad. Like, I was sad last night thinking about, like, how this moment got taken away from all these actors to be a part of the Disney 100. Mm. But at the same time, it's like... We live in a world with Disney, whether we like it or not. Right. And if certain people get a hold of that, it's really, really... It could be really, really bad for a lot of people. Yeah, heard, agree. I would like I would like to live in a world where Disney's not this big. Where I would Disney's like to live in a world where Warner Brothers isn't this not big. Not a complete villain. Yeah, if yeah, if you're gonna be that but big, kind of be a more of a force for neutral or or good or better. Right. No, new, something about neutral is sort of insidious too. A force for yeah. good. Yeah. A force for, a force for. I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but basically like repelling 
not repelling, yeah. but like preventing malicious people from getting control of huge chunks of media. Right. Preventing malicious people from negatively affecting the consumers. Exactly. Like, Again. Disney is almost its own bureaucracy in, in that regard where, um, yeah, it's meant to like protect consumers or it, it, it intends to kind of yeah. protect its, its audience. Yeah, because again, it's like the anti-Disney sentiment the last few years have taken. I'm like, I didn't know for sure it would end with people homering for Ron DeSantis and like basically cheering on uh, conservatives indoctrinating your children with media. But mm-hmm. I guess that's just where we are. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, did you want to briefly talk about the strike wrapping up? Yeah, you know, um, this is extremely topical for us because it happened literally last night as of the time of this recording. Um, Even though, did the article say, or I can't remember when it said it actually goes into effect. I think it doesn't go into effect until tomorrow. Um, But either way, their SAG-AFTRA and the studios have reached what they call a tentative agreement, which to me, every time I hear tentative agreement, like to me that doesn't feel... It doesn't feel like anything. Like to me, that that seems like it's not any like nothing's been reached. But when right. you hear that, it actually does mean that they have an right. agreement and they intend to go through with it. Um, which right. means that I we have are, a I have tentative trade. I have like twelve tentative agreements and fantasy trades. I'm not going to do any of them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, eh, I don't know. Would I actually? Somebody win says in that, that something is tentative. Yeah, it means that there's a high chance it's not happening. Um, but in this case, they I guess they have to legally call it tentative and then, you know, but they intend to go through with it. So anyway, the long and short of it is that we are about to be on the other side of the strike. And boy, howdy. What's it been? 180 something days? Yeah. Has it been that many days? Just... Truly astonishing. Maybe 160. Something like that. It was like, there was an eight in there somewhere. But either way, we've been here for 100 days. Um, and it's, what a what a journey. I mean, we briefly talked about this when it initially took place. Um, and we have, like, you know, not, I, to go off of what I just said a minute ago, not only do I feel like, these like media publications are kind of getting pantsed by the strike but like so many individuals like actors and even CEOs and like our old buddy Uncle Bob Iger truly Mm -hmm. like you know being like revealed um you know what's what's been the darndest thing for me I feel like the strike took a lot of the magic out of late night television (laughs) In- that's the angle you're going with. <laughs> like, I don't okay. know why, but I need to talk about it somewhere. For me, when the, when, the, when the writer strike happened, because it's like, on some intellectual level, I understand that, like, late night television is comedy, and there are comedy writers who, like, write the sketches and, and, and have these ideas, but it's like, you really don't, you associate the show with the figurehead. You mm-hmm. associate the show with Jimmy Fallon and with Stephen Colbert. But then, like, they they got their writers taken away, and some of them a- attempted to persist and, like, had nothing. Couldn't do it. Oh, yeah. And I don't know why, for me, that, like, now that 
the writers returned, which happened, you know, a while ago now, I said, like, the magic is gone. Like, I don't know, like, I, like, I'm not charmed by them anymore. And if anything else, like, I feel sort of like, ugh, like, okay, I sort of. It's interesting. That's your biggest thing. I know. It's it's weird. I like it. Right? Yeah. (sighs) For me, it really is just a, like, I mean, I don't know. It really is, like, I don't know. It just, like, it's hard to. I mean, it's easy to celebrate because they did get good deals. AI has been thoroughly stamped out. Mm -hmm. Um, There's more fights to come on the horizon with the Animation Guild. But, Mm. like, I don't know. It's just, like, it's just exhausting that it came to this. That, like, because the story of the strikes is the story of what's happened to media companies in the 21st century of, like, Wall Street corporate ghouls took over things they didn't really have an interest in other than stock prices, drove toward the dumbest, most obvious bad ideas, in this case, the idea of Netflix, which was always fool's gold, which Mm -hmm. was always, we're the only game in town, so our stock prices will always be high, even though we are objectively losing money from this. Right. And kind of like broken industry a little bit, like as exciting as it is to get back to work, things are broken. Like, we are in the yeah. aftermath of a disaster, an economic disaster. And it's like, right. how do we make sure this doesn't happen anymore? And the answer is, well... It's not like the writers where they were able to just, like, go back to their offices the next day. Like, right. there's kind of a lot of damage yeah. to clean up. Like, I guess, yeah, that's a little bit of my bummer where it's like, like, unless we can convince Congress enough to care to break up some of these companies, to diversify, to... Because, again, it's so telling that Lionsgate was the one who got an exception so they could start promoting uh, the new Hunger Games movie. Because they don't have a fucking streaming service. They don't... Like, they're small compared to everyone else. At some Mm -hmm. point, they realize there is no incentive to get dragged over the cliff by companies who are literally only... Like, you know, again, like, I have no... I have no overly kind feelings for Bob Iger, but at the same time, he's not a fucking idiot. He knows that this was dumb. He knew this was a terrible idea. And every single one of his actions since becoming CEO underlines that he realized that Disney Plus was a mistake to a certain extent. Mm. Or at least Disney Plus, how it was presented as a content creating machine was a mistake. Like, you look at the actions of Paramount. a vault for... Yes. Yeah. Again, I keep saying, call it the Disney vault, but I digress. Like, Mm -hmm. all the actions of Disney over the last year, all of the actions of Paramount, even some of the actions of Warner Brothers, but Warner Brothers is truly, at this point, a hollowed husk waiting to be sold to someone who actually wants to have a movie studio. Mm -hmm. Like, their actions underline that they realized that they followed Netflix down a garden path of ruin, but because their board, you know, because, again, their boards and executives, like, executive-like tables are filled with people who only want to see a line go up forever. They just have to keep doubling down. Like, they're in too deep. Admitting any of this would get them fired. And I'm like, I don't know how you fix that unless you get a Congress who's willing to smash companies into bits to allow more diversity so, right. like, the four big players aren't in a suicide pact with each other. Right. And, I like, I'm sorry I'm taking the bummer approach because this is huge. This was one right. of the, like, in an era of cynicism and in an era of, like, toxic individualism, to have enough of a collective, to have two huge working victories, like, victories truly for, like, the working class is really fucking beautiful. Like, we did it. It was hard, but we did it. Like, people people came together and sacrificed. 
people who had no incentive to sacrifice, people who had nothing left to lose, all came together and held the line. Mm. So congratulations, everyone. Yeah, well done. And I think we're all looking forward to um, the future. Me too. And now back to your regular scheduled programming. Okay, so indie animation. Let's talk about it. Um, Mm -hmm. In the beginning of this episode, we kind of briefly explained. Let's, Let's sort of give an actual, like, clear definition of what we mean by indie animation. Um, Because it doesn't necessarily need to be on YouTube, even though we are focusing on things that do get published on YouTube. But really, this is, we're talking about cartoons or animation that are independently funded and created by individual artists. They're either, they're, they're obviously drawn by individual artists. They're also, in a lot of cases, voiced. Some of these artists also do the voice work for them. Some of the more like rudimentary ones. Um, some of them have become more sophisticated, which we will talk about. But basically, it is um, in animation that's either sourced by like crowdfunding or just funded by the individual artists themselves, or maybe they have a little studio, you know, if you will, maybe with them and, and some of their colleagues. Um, but these prod- projects are not funded by like a major studio, like some of the ones we just mentioned in our inter- internet minute. So, yeah. um, so what does that, what does that mean then after, you know, if, if people are able to make their own cartoons, what does the result end up kind of entailing? And I think the results of that have kind of like evolved over time um oh I, yeah well you know i'm i'm i want to just start with with david firth the artist because i look back on his salad fingers video 16 Ugh. years ago that was posted right and i wanted to start there because i'm like holy macaroni 16 years ago but i'm also thinking of that video that you sent me that somehow i had never seen of like the duck song and the great duck song yeah I don't know the how fact I that you that. all right, audience. To give you context, if you're familiar with the duck song, that's like sing us about the duck song, and it's a very like rudimentary <laughs> MS Paint animation right. of a anthropomorphic duck going up to. I can't believe I'm explaining this. Going up to a man selling lemonade and asking him if he has grapes over and over <laughs> again to a little pit like a little cutesy putsy song. song. Yeah, Sydney Nicole Barkley. And has only just discovered this in the year 2023. I don't know. I don't know how I had Were you never... in a coma for about three years when you were a child? No, but I had, like, very controlled internet access as a kid. Oh, okay. Which did not but include like, YouTube until I was, like, in middle school, probably. I guess. But, yeah, the, it is interesting because, like, so much of this discussion, as you say, like, 16 years ago... It really is like a tree, the same tree you would use to draw animation on. Sorry. Wow. That was the worst thing I've ever said on this show. And I've said some pretty egregious things. I can't believe you turned that into a joke. Anyway. Yeah. But anyway, you can like cut the tree open and see the rings of like the different eras. And like really, Soured Fingers kind of feels like the capsulation of like the first 
era for me. And that's, yeah, that's why I wanted to start there, because for me, Salad Fingers represents, like, a sort of um, mainstream awareness of independent mm. animation. It's the first thing that I think kind of went viral in terms of independent animation. Like, yes. I mean, maybe Duck Song did, but, like... In terms of people being aware of there being, <laughs> of, of there being like this weird video, um, and first of all, David Firth, I wanted to include this because he is one of my favorite artists. Even though Salad mm. Fingers was never really directly my jam, I respect it as a work. But yeah. um, of his work, um, did you happen to watch Cream? No. I will say I David Firth's stuff disturbs me to the point that I listed well, Salad Fingers on the list of things I wanted to talk about in this episode, but then just in parentheses he said, I'm not linking it lest it curse me. And then I immediately erased that and just linked it anyway because, Yeah, you know. and now I'm cursed. Right. Thanks. Well, like, so let's, like, if we can zoom in on David Firth for a second and, like, why this Salad Fingers thing maybe got the attention that it did, which has to do with a couple of these other topics on here um Mm -hmm. on our on our list we like made a little document where we dumped a bunch of like examples of indie animation that we have we tried to like break down the eras so we had like a shared reference point as we talked through them right so a lot of not just animation on youtube but i would say like youtube has become a collection spot for like indie filmmaking in general of the horror genre Mm -hmm. um there is a lot of what I what is called surreal horror, which is David Firth totally falls into a surrealist artist, uh, meaning that like, you know, for those of you that know art, I would call somebody like a Francis Bacon, a surreal artist, somebody that that makes art that is scary because it's uncanny. It's it's scary because it's it's extremely uncomfortably abnormal and um not necessarily because it jumps at you or it's gory and and or it's bloody or violent in any way like a traditional horror thing that you might think of um it just is weird to like an uncomfortable degree and Mm. you know it hurts to look at and and it might hurt to look at a little bit so salad fingers you know, I won't tell you what it's about, like, because there's a high chance you've seen it. Please go see it if you have. But um, it's a very, very short, almost nothing happens. And that's kind of a lot of what David Frost's work is. And I was watching it again, and it kind of struck me for the first time of, like, why Why does stuff like this, why is it scary? Um, you know, is it because he created a weird character? And And I realized, no, it's not. It's because... He creates weird characters and puts them kind of in the void. It's the same thing as like a Courage the Cowardly Dog, where they live, where they make it clear that they live in the middle of nothing, in the middle of nowhere. And something is very scary about like the feeling of isolation and like the mystery of what is in the dark and what is in the expansive void around you. And he places. Mm these strange characters that are that do weird things even these like really dark rooms where he just like almost his work almost does look like an ms paint thing like you know it looks like it it's the doodles of like a small child um but he uses these very dark muted muddy looking colors and 
there the fear is in sort of the negative space where you kind of don't mm-hmm. know where anyone is like it's sort of unclear where these people exist um but like you know anyway that's my talk about about surrealist horror but i feel like you know you and i went back and forth about whether don't hug me i'm scared qualifies as animation would you call puppetry animation I mean, honestly, I feel like that would be a better thing to ask Callum and Kevin, especially Kevin. Oh, right. I feel the, like the he would have people. strong opinions about this. You would be surprised. We had a like borderline yelling match um, <laughs> the other night when you weren't on, where Kenny Mac was insistent that it counts as animation, and Callum was like, "Well, it has animation in it." I guess, like, if animation is telling stories mm. through inanimate objects, then I would say Perhaps. yes, it does classify as. Um, animation. I think yeah, puppetry but, is puppetry. I think of that as a category. It's its own medium or genre. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. It. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about the surreal elements, like the surrealist part of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like, it's so similar to Salad Fingers and so much of early internet. Like, yeah, we really are going to the dawn of the internet uh, for this episode, right. guys. Because, like, it's so interesting that we talk about Salad Fingers and... Um, the duck song kind of in the same era because they kind of do embody the like sort of original internet as it were Mm -hmm. sort of like the bedrock of internet storytelling of internet culture of internet animation like one of the animation pieces i sent you was a piece by ego rap like aaron hansen who goes by like ego raptor he's one of the game grumps but originally he was like an animator on youtube and newgrounds newgrounds being this sort of like this was back before YouTube slaughtered all of its competition. So, mm-hmm. like, there were, you know, like, this and, like, blip.tv were conceivable places you could put internet content. Right. Like, I guess Vimeo still exists, but that's more for, like, artsy-fartsy people to keep their, their um, stuff student films. In a lock. Yeah. 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 That's, that has a specific utility. Right. As, whereas, like, anything like YouTube is effectively dead. I mean, right. I guess Newground still exists, but it's not, you know... Like, YouTube has crushed it. Um, But, yeah, it's, like, what is, like, internet culture at this point? It is meme, like, it's developing this sort of, like, meme culture of, like, really dumb, broad humor. That, like, someone can just say, bop, 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 gunny, great. Yeah, it's endless inside jokes that a theoretical infinite amount of people can learn. It is pop culture references. Uh, The animation I sent is just a really dumb Pokemon skit. Um, where someone, keep, you know, Venusaur keeps forgetting he's only supposed to say Venusaur. Um, and horror. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's so uncanny going back to OG internet and seeing how much of it is just so horrible. Like, creepypasta feels like it was, like, one of the first oh, internet things in yeah. terms of internet culture. Like, and, you know, uh, you talking about, like, the nothing, the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It is so weird being a person sitting on a little light box reading a spooky story and, like, theoretically knowing other people are reading it, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it's only you in this theoretically infinite void. Right. It is, like, yeah, it, I, you can't say that YouTube animators and, like, internet animators didn't immediately kind of, I guess the question is more just, did they set the tone or did they just identify the tone before everyone else did? Yeah, and to kind of, like, sort of segue, um, or attach something to this part of the talk about horror like i want to talk to that thing that you sent me recently this amazing digital circus Mm -hmm. um yes a sort of modern version 
Um, I mean, is that, that, is that was, going popular? Is that popular right now? Oh, it's excessively viral. And okay. yeah, it is interesting with how much everything's changed. There's certain like threads and like tethers that stay connected through these different eras. But yes, it is another sort of surrealist sort of horror adjacent thing. But the horror is very like it's not as grotesque or like immediately uncomfortable as um, Soured Fingers. In a lot of ways, it represents kind of how the horror genre has changed to be more even more surrealist, even more sort of like hazy and vague and sort of like discussion worthy. Again, sort of the game theory of this all like kind of. Like, it's kind of crazy how, like, Matt Pat's career began before he began a career in terms of, like, oh, yes, the internet, a place where you can talk to infinite people and debate what things mean. Um, It behooves you, like, Soured Fingers was on that before that kind of culture existed. Well, you know, specifically this amazing digital circus thing, like, I'm hesitant to, to even call it horror at all. Um, because for me, you are, you are, you are living up to your girl boss gatekeep critical. with this because we discussed Absolutely. this. And I think I use the term like entry level surrealism. Um, because to me, this feels like baby's first surrealist film. Like it's the fact that, that you like it because you're not a horror person. Not like, even a little. Disqualifies it as horror. <laughs> oh, because, whoa, whoa. Don't make me look like a little weenie hut junior. You don't like... Okay, How but, dare. but you don't want to watch Salad Fingers, but you'll access this. But that's what I mean. This is that, and I think that's the key to how popular it gets. Because when I huh. saw this, first of all, I could see the direct threads between this and Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, which at this point I qualify myself as like an expert on Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. It's one of my favorite works of art ever. But like, I can see the exact through lines of, of, of the inspiration, if you will, that came from Don't Hug Me about like um surveillance the the nature of of surveillance the nature of um censorship and like controlled media um and also somebody like being trapped in like a digital world and technology and um someone being re- required but, um, to put on a show that they don't have someone to say being over. required to put on a show that they don't want to and um and being kind of tortured in the process kind of but like, I've got issues. Like, this is this. Like, if I had to script doctor anything, I would script doctor this a little bit. Um, but I think that's why it's become so popular because it's kind of like more accessible to people that like that are that will be turned off by something that gets a little more gruesome. Like, a don't hug me. I'm scared. Um, I am curious to see where the series goes. I almost, yeah. as we're talking, I realize the rings of a tree metaphor might not be the right one for this. It's almost like roots or branches where you see how it like ebbs and flows and sometimes the flowers will bloom differently but the signs of the old flowers are still there right that they're all of the same tree kind of becomes clearer yeah definitely yeah that's actually a better metaphor of like each branch being its kind of own category and then it it keeps growing and, and extending as time goes on Well, I was also just going to say, I feel like also for me, this specifically appeals to me because I was such a kid of these like early 90s computer games. Mm. Like I played Putt-Putt. I played um, Pajam Sam. I loved Lego Island. uh, Maybe the greatest video game man has ever created. Um, 
So, like, to have, like, this, like, sort of pixely showman, like, like a character being like, welcome to this video game. And all the mm-hmm. characters sort of knowing they're in a video game, but not really. And, mm-hmm. like, interacting with you, the audience. Like, uh, truly my cheese. <laughs> right, my right. Nice brie. <laughs> um, well, you know, a moment ago you mentioned that you shared this Pokemon thing. Which I think is kind of another branch of this tree. Which is, like, um, indie animation that is an adaptation of something that already exists. Mm-hmm. And that's a right. huge category. There is, yeah. oh my god, there's there's almost a, a crossroads here of like surrealist horror and yes. like existing IP. Because there's like a whole culture of like surrealist SpongeBob animation mm-hmm. of like the, which is cray cray, but very popular online. Yes, um, I don't get it but I respect people or your beloved mass, the animal crossing series, this idea of like taking something that okay. exists and putting a spin on it. Do you want to just have the floor for like five minutes or so? And talk well, about this, you know, yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, okay. So, so you added this Pokemon thing, which is a little more humorous. I feel like there's a lot of that on YouTube as well. Yes. Uh, for if it's not characters. surrealism, it's usually like kind of a parody or like a nonsensical. Comedy right. Sketch. Right. Um, so, for anyone who has met me for even a single day, you know that I'm a huge Animal Crossing fan. But like the new, the newest game—it's not new anymore. It's three years old now. Um, Animal Crossing New Horizons has inspired three. sort of a lot of like discourse almost about like <laughs> you know some of us in in the Animal Crossing world uh, take some of this more literally. And maybe that's kind of the way that you have to play it is believing that some of these characters are real, but you are in a simulation. So like, why would they not be? But, um, there, um, there is an artist on YouTube. His name is Densel, D-E-N-S-L-E. Um, and he's a very talented animator. He, like, his work looks like it was made by Nintendo. He Mm -hmm. designs... Like, he pretty much designed and recreated every element of Animal Crossing New Horizons. Every tree, all of the way all the bugs look, the way the tools look, the way the animals look, the way they sound. Like, the environments, it looks enhanced, even even prettier, actually, than what the game itself looks like. But they look directly pulled from Nintendo. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um... So, and I guess it helps, you know, when we talked about, like, oh, who do they get to voice these things? But it's Animal Crossing, so, like, you don't need any voices to do it. You can just do, like, the little animal, animalese <laughs> voice that, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, like, you know, he has this this more dark, dramatic series about mm-hmm. the nature of Animal Crossing and what, and what some of the NPCs, like, go through. Uh, while you're not playing the game because that was the whole appeal of Animal Crossing the idea that your town is still functioning and living even while you're not playing the game so he sort of uh, takes uh, it really is kind of dark Um, it's charming it's it's very emotional and it's so funny because it's like all of the characters still look sort of adorable like they're from Animal Crossing Mm -hmm. But something about it, like, it has a lot of emotional weight and the stakes feel really high. And yeah. he created this, like, this, like, emotional uh, drama uh, from About characters dealing with the fact 
the fact that they're not the main character and the main character is an omnipotent god who kind of is a doesn't villain. care whether yeah. they live how they, whether exist. they live or die right exactly exactly like you know if he gets bored he can just press the erase button and everything yeah. you've lived in for a year plus just gets evaporated right and it's like just you gone. know we in the game like you can walk into like a villager's house while they're in there working and like take their stuff and can you imagine like he animated that into an episode of like somebody walking into this critter's home and just like snatching something out of their hands <laughs> which is how you play the game like but he just sort of added this like emotional element of like what that experience would really be <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, and it's like, again, it's so fascinating how, like, all the different branches of this thing cut and interweave and touch. Because I yeah. really like that series. That's kind of more my, kind of more my horror sensibilities. Yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Sydney, are you learning something from this? Don't blow up your island again. <laughs> think about no. the critters. You would think I learned. I did not know. But, uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad to your... hear that you like that. Because that's, that's, it's a really good one. Um, um, yeah, but... Sort of, like, sort of going back to the start of the tree then. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we, we have stuff like Salad Fingers, Duck Song, sort of early YouTube animation. I think the thing to underline, and this is kind of where a big crutch, like a, like a core of our art discussion is going to be. Like, at this time, YouTube animation, if not, su- was not super profitable, but it was profitable. If you mm. are part of a YouTube collective or you could consistently make something every few months... YouTube's monetization policy at this time was very simple. It was more or less completely just click equal money. The amount of views you got translated to a certain cash amount. Right. But then things changed in the mid-2000s. So are you familiar with the trend called Reply Girls? No. So the idea was sort of to, not necessarily, again, so much of this was so fucking coded and sexist. I don't want, I want to use my words carefully here. Right. But sort of people saw an opportunity to use the system to create a pretty substantial profit. So the idea is certain women um, would um, wear sort of low cut shirts, use that as their thumbnail, and they would just react to news. They would be like one to two minute videos that you could just churn out like crazy because they didn't take that long to make. And as a result, because we live in a piggish society, um, people Mm -hmm. would just click them because of the boobs, and they would just turn a profit. It was just an easy way to make money. Hmm. And a lot of other YouTubers got really, 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 really mad about this. And demanded a change. Again, it was very coded and sexist. And YouTube yeah. also was like, eh, this kind of gaming the algorithm. So they changed the algorithm. And they're always very coy and indirect. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that so much of this is dependent on YouTube, which is a monolith that is so algorithm and AI-pilled that they don't know how to run things right, mm-hmm. um, is kind of one of the core problems of all of this. Um, mm. They changed the algorithm to be more about minutes watched. Which is a problem because it takes forever to make a single minute of animation. The previous model worked because it's like, yes, you're only making about two minutes of animation for every few months. But you could still get a lot of clicks because a two-minute video is easy to share. And if it's funny, more people will watch it. So Duck Song can spread like wildfire because it's like, oh, this is just a basic three-minute animation that everyone can – you can watch it over and over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, Ross O'Donovan, um, sort of YouTube animator who does like – animation 
like streams animation on Twitch um, and does like different tours where he animates. Um, did a really great video covering all of this. When they changed the algorithm, the invern effect it had was it completely fucked animators over mm. because you simply could not produce animation long enough. Yeah. Like in the current system that we were in in the early 2000s, you could not produce enough content to do like good quality animation or funny animation and still make money from it. I see. I didn't know about any of that. Yeah. Yeah, and that, like, that kind of led us to this, like, weird sort of interstitial middle portion of all of this. Right. Sort of the era of, like, the story time YouTubers. Like, yeah. I, we don't need to over-explain this section, but if you've seen Swoozy, if you've seen Jaden Animations, right. if you've seen The Odd Ones Out, you kind of know what we're talking about. The idea exactly. is someone does, like, very simple animation, usually almost more, like, storyboard in nature. Correct. Sort yeah. of talking about their lives, Minimal talking movement. about different stories. Right. Yeah. Swoozy became very big because he talked about his time working at the Walt Disney Company, like, in right. the park system. Right. Um, like, Jaden Odd Ones Out kind of... There was, like, a huge group of them who really rose to prominence at the same time and inadvertently, like, created a cottage industry, like, mm-hmm. out of the ruins of what was left. Yeah, that still, like, heavily exists. Now there are so mm-hmm. many channels that are, like, history channels that... that use animation to be like oh this is the story of um benedict arnold and yes it'll be like animated with stick figures and it'll be like kind of humorous but you'll like learn something that's really popular right now i want to watch a video on benedict arnold right there's literally thousands yeah (laughs) like did you know that the benedict arnold house is in is still standing in in a fairmont park in philadelphia Shit, you want to go to it? Hell yeah, I've I've been there. It's uh, called Mount Pleasant, and it's like it's beautiful and kind of spooky, but but nice. Ooh, um, did you know there was a whole bit with him in Hamilton? Uh, yes, that yes, I did know about that story. It's so funny that his wife <laughs> was in was on in it the entire house. time. <laughs> Hamilton and George Washington were in that house when that happened. Like that's so cool. That's just one of the three or four things. I like the things that got cut from Hamilton more than I like Hamilton at this point because they're all interesting. But I love the idea that his wife was in on it the whole time and egged him oh, on. Without question. And then basically got away because she right. just played like the pretty damsel who was caught up in well, all this. Well, she just and- played like senile woman and everyone's like, they're there. But like, yeah. you know, I read, not to go on a Hamilton tangent, but I did like, well, I yeah, started, re- I started reading episode. the Hamilton source material, like the documentary. Oh, on yeah. Him. The, oh, not the documentary. You know, his biography. On him about like, you know, because of the trauma of like watching his mother die, he was just predisposed to like distressed women. And that really became his ruin of like that. I mean, that that's what happened uh, with like you the, and me both brother. Um, what was that lady's name? You know, the one who extorted him. Right. Like because like he was he had he'd sympathy for women who were like distressed and ill and needed something from him and he like he and that's the same thing that happened with with benedict arnold's wife and would end up ruining his life yeah i do love the conspiracy that he actually was committing like economic fraud and came up with the affair story to like cover it up and i'm like a thousand things you could think of to cover up financial impropriety Instead he, of, he wasn't I cheated a fucking on my wife. moron. Yeah, he's a fucking <laughs> idiot. Like he built an entire <laughs> banking system. I think you can think of a better, least con- like a more sound excuse than Without I fucked another woman. Your family's life. <laughs> like you can never be that desperate. But I digress. <laughs> right. Anyway, so like the point, like yeah, it's interesting that like 
YouTube animation, I don't want to say it came back from the dead because of storytelling animation, but it was a model to convince people that it was still something worth investing in, that there was still something there. I think it's mm -hmm. very telling that like Jane Animations in particular and um, Odd Ones Out have continued on like and still have pretty lucrative careers. And mm -hmm. yes, they only make like an episode every few months, but they have like whole teams dedicated to it. They found right. other ways of making revenue through merch or briefly Patreons Patreon, or yeah. like side projects. Like, yeah, Odd Ones Out had like a card game. He had an animated show on oh, Netflix. Cool. Like they're finding other ways to make it work. And yeah. they're, they've gone from like storyboards to full animation. But there was this era of animation that was like, like you were either doing it for the passion or you were doing it like simplified. Like it was mm -hmm. an era of simplification where right. it was a lot of animatics. It was a lot of like, making like storyboards to music videos like that whole era kind of serves as a transition as we get into this like era of like kind of more series is there a name for the kind of anim i i i don't even know if it's considered animation i i assume that it is but it's like it looks like it's drawn on a whiteboard and it looks like like where like this hand kind of digitally comes in and like oh draw my life not draw my life, but it's like there's a there's a channel called like ASAP Science, and like there's a lot of like I see it all the time um, of somebody explaining like oh this is what cigarettes do to your lung, and then like they like it's it's like a drawn anim like graph or something, but it, but then this hand kind of like that looks like it's no no I can't <laughs> moving I, you, over I definitely it. know what you're saying. I just never oh. called it anything other than draw my life, but oh. yeah I think like. As like I said, as we talk about this, it is kind of like the two, the big problem of like money and opportunity becomes a thing. Right. Um, sort of like another middle era that like we talk about leading up to this current era is like stuff like Bee and Puppycat, which I sent um, Sydney to watch. That's what I wanted to kind of segue into. I and for that, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's its own branch of like animation that that imitates the stuff that's on TV. Yes, a fully, like, serialized, we are doing something you would see on Cartoon Network, but in on a digital platform. Right. Which, I can give a brief little context. I'm a little fuzzy on a lot of the details, but I have a broad context. This was a part of something called Cartoon Hangover. Basically, Channel Frederator, which is, like, a YouTube thing, um, like, basically giving people opportunities to make pilots and series. This is one of the few mm -hmm. that got, like, greenlit to a full series, um, Pendleton Ward of Adventure Time had a series on here, um, Bravest Warrior, and he's been trying to get that off the ground for forever. I don't know if they ended up making more episodes of it. Um, did they? Yeah, they ended up making, okay, so they did end up getting um, some episodes of it, but it took forever for them to get rolling. And it's like, if that's not the embodiment of like how arbitrary and like so random a lot of this is, and like the follies of internet animation, it's like, the guy who made Adventure Time, that already existed at this point, a man who, like, single-handedly kind of changed the direction and the history of Cartoon Network, still, mm -hmm. like, it took him forever to get another series made on a smaller platform, I think kind of underlines it. But yes, Being Puppycat was a huge one that, like, kind of was the embodiment of this cartoon hangover era. Um, yeah, like, I, I'm glad that you're bringing up um, Adventure Time in particular, because when I was watching this, first of all, um, I really like it. But mm -hmm. to like, it's so curious to me because it follows this very 
specific formula for modern animation, not just the independent stuff, but for a lot of what we see now on Cartoon Network or like the last like the last generation of Cartoon Network, um, which is kind of like, okay, the characters are like um, sort of like a, a child adult, like that's kind of in between being like maybe they are actually an adult but they sort of act sort of childlike they're a little bombastic they're um mm-hmm. they're kind of reckless and there's some sort of like mystical animal creature um that's around but then also like these sort of like coded male characters that are also very like anti-masculine right and 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 I'm the only reason I'm like it struck me to see it here is because I'm like, this is almost... Because we just finished watching um, Fiona and Cake. And I'm like, well, I'll be damned if this isn't, like, exactly that. <laughs> Shit, we never did end up talking about Fiona and Cake, did we? You said you wanted to rewatch the last no, two episodes. because so I fell I was asleep during them. And I never did go back to it. I think I got to. All right. I we'll, do that. We'll, That's my we'll homework. shove that somewhere into schedule. Yeah. Okay. We'll shove that somewhere into schedule. Because yeah. I'd like to talk about that on, like, on the mic. But yeah. I love how conversational this episode is. Right. Um, but yeah, being puppycat, it is interesting. And that's like another interesting point of this. It's like, how much are they emulating what you can see on television and how much are they doing their own thing? Because like, you wouldn't see something like Salad Fingers on any kid's network or any, like, you're only seeing stuff like Salad Fingers on TV now. Like the art style really reminds me of Smiling Friends, which was another started as an internet thing and then got bought by a studio. It's on Adult Swim now. It's mm. like, you're only just getting that kind of gross, weird animation style and sort of like light horror stuff. Like now, the avenue for that yeah. is very limited. Whereas this very much feels like it's in line with Steven Universe and Adventure Time. And like, Correct. this era of very like, Bubblegum color, pastel Yes, dreamy. Space. That's the perfect word for it. Yeah. Yes. A lot of similar ideas and aesthetics and vibes. Um, like, Wikipedia describes its genres as fantasy, surrealism, comedy, drama. And I'm like, that could fucking describe so much of this era of animation. Comedy, drama, and yet it good, has its bad, own, dark like, light. <laughs> yeah. But it has its own, like, sense of style and energy that I really yeah. appreciate. It's soft. But, like, Yeah. But even this, I'm, like, it kind of embodies, like, and I guess I'm focusing more on, like, as opposed to individual, like, shows and stuff, it, like, I'm worried more on the business side. One thing I'll say is, like, a very common thread with all of these is lore. Like, there's so much lore in terms of, like, there's, like, like, it's serialized storytelling, but also, like, stuff to dissect, stuff to Mm -hmm. figure out. Like, Salad Fingers, like, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, like, Being a Puppy Cat. This is just the not scary version of that. Right, exactly. But you can't deny that, like, it is interesting. I, I'm so curious what triggered what, because we're comparing yeah. it to Steven Universe and Adventure Time. But at the same time, it's like, I would argue Steven Universe and Adventure Time and, like, shows like that were given the opportunity by internet animation to tell more serialized stories. Because, mm. like, you know, there used to be an understanding. You don't do serialization on television. Like, there's a chance someone might not get to see an episode and then they'll right. just be completely fucking lost. Yeah. Yeah, they'll just never understand what's going on. Right, Whereas, exactly. like, Steven Universe can do, like, entire season arcs. They can have callbacks to previous seasons. They can do all of this over, like, five seasons because they're the understanding that the internet is a solve. You can just get the answer on this. On the ba- You basically have the Library of Alexandria mm-hmm. on a little piece of glass you sit and look at while you're on the toilet. Right. Um, and it is interesting to think it's like, 
How much did the internet influence that? Like, how much did stuff like being Puppycat influence Steven Universe? Mm-hmm. And how much vice versa? Right. I would um, argue is... that... I, I would probably still be a believer that, like, the it's a one-way street that starts with the larger studios and what's on television and then, like... At least for things like being Puppycat. As, yeah. to me, being, like, inspired by the stuff that's on that's popular and it's on TV. I mean, probably. I mean, I don't know if a street is the right metaphor, even. If it's, or right. it's just, if only, like, I would argue maybe, again, if it's like a branch, it's like, well, both, both mainstream and independent are growing at the same time. Yeah. It feels like, you know, the advent of the internet inspired both creators, big and small, to go through with it. Or, like, to commit to serialized storytelling like this. Um, right. Well, I was just going to say, but being Puppycat also gets into what I'm talking about with, like, mainstream versus, or, like, studios versus independent artists. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you know, it had Federator Studios behind it. It had, the animation was outsourced to Dongwoo Animation in South Korea. Like, this was a project. Ultimately, like, it started as a web pilot, uh, like a Kickstarter web pilot, Um and then got Frederator Studios behind it to make it. And then ultimately, like, the whole second season got stuck in production limbo for forever because they didn't have a distributor. They're like, we spent too much money on this. We need a distributor. We can't just put it on YouTube. And again, that just gets to sort of, like, the weird relationship we have with all of this stuff in terms of, like, even when you're trying to do your own thing and be independent, you end up somehow at the mercy of Mm -hmm. a bigger entity that kind of decides how it goes effectively. Right. Yeah, I feel you. Um, you know, as, as I feel like we're kind of reaching the end point of this conversation, I think there is still, like, one more branch here to sort of deal mm-hmm. with, and that's, like, the advantage of having no censorship on the Internet and the kind of advent of what is now called adult animation which i heaviest eye roll um at the term but i think i think that that term has kind of been bastardized (laughs) um to to mean something kind of stupid and bad but um but yeah you drawn together looking at you drawn together yeah without question yeah it starts with things like that but um you know you sh- you told you showed me two things here the Hasbin Hotel Hell of a Boss which like I I didn't get to watch Hell of a Boss but I started with Hasbin Hotel and maybe you can explain a little more about it but like what is it about animation that like I am reluctant like something about an excessive amount of like cursing and like adult themes feels like off putting yeah it, is it because your brain still feels that it. it's a like a cartoon. I think it, it's complicated. I think it's like, I think it can be a number of things. And like, yeah, like this, all of this leads us up to the modern era of this sort of renaissance, not renaissance, but boon of independent animation. Um, And I think it is, I think it's complicated. Like Mm -hmm. there is a certain, like, and maybe I, a part of it's probably just personal taste, but like, yeah. Honestly, Drawn Together is, like, the best example of this. Because in the Drawn Together movie, they discover they can curse, and then they just keep swearing and swearing, and you're like, shouldn't the joke be here that once you have the freedom to say fuck as much many times as you want, it gets boring? Because it's like, right. well, it's just like a comma. You can just throw it in anywhere. It's not special. Exactly. But it's like, even, but I, you know, 
even the edgiest things on television, like a South Park or even Family Guy, like are palatable in ways that, and and maybe it's just like exposure over time, um, that you need to kind of match an art style with like an expectation of of what the content's gonna be, and like Seth MacFarlane has a very specific art style, um, like all his shows look exactly the same. Um, and I guess that's by design, but like you have an expectation of what you're going to get when you see that. So, you know, with this has been hotel, like, okay, yeah, it looks, it looks very Invader Zim, which, which you, which you mentioned, there's some crossover there between like the voice Mm -hmm. actors. Um, but then like, so my brain is expecting one thing and I think like I'm getting delivered something that like feels wrong. (laughs) Yeah. This era is interesting because it is, like, while some people prickle at the idea of independent YouTube animation being boiled down to hell of a boss and has been hotel, they are kind of some of the most prominent examples and feel like they ushered in a new era, Mm -hmm. whether you like it or not. Yeah. Like, so I'm more, like, so for, and again, it kind of is a culmination of a lot of our different discussions. It's, like, serialized storytelling, it is sort of the censorship-free, like, being able to do whatever you want. Yeah. Being sort of borderline surrealist, but also having, like, sort of dumb, meme humor. Yeah. And on top of that, there's, like, discourse, particularly with Hell of a Boss, which is, like, the actual series that's had episodes. Okay. Um, like, there's a lot of discussion about, like, character arcs and theories about where things are going to go or, like, the politics of Hell. So, short version of this for people who aren't familiar with this. Aspen Hotel is a, um, was a YouTube animated pilot, animated over two years by a team um, led by Vivian uh, Midrondo. Um, she is known as Fizzy Pop on YouTube. She kind of grew in prominence due to a lot of short animations. She did a big animated piece to Kesha's song, Die Young. She makes a series about um, the daughter of Satan, basically, creating a hotel to rehabilitate demons so they get to go to heaven. Um, it became very huge on the internet. But pointedly, it was always pitched as a series that would get picked up. The idea is, like, we are creating this pilot to present it, to sell it to, like, studios to get money to make more, basically. Um, And sure enough, it gets picked up by A24, God, years ago. Like, the original pilot came out in 2019, and we're only just getting the show on Amazon starting next year. Mm-hmm. Like, that's to underline how long animation takes. Right, um, yeah. To do, like, a full series. But in the interim, she has also worked on a spinoff series that will permanently be on um, YouTube called Hell of a Boss, which I think is useful for this discussion to, like, sort of talk about, to sort of talk about, like, her style and sort of the style of this modern YouTube era. Yeah. So Hell of, Hell of a Boss, the basic gimmick is it is a group of um, imps, like little demons, who have started a business where um, if you're in hell and you want someone on Earth dead, you can go to them and they'll take care of it for you. Um, and as the series has gone on, it's kind of become more of like a character drama comedy where we really follow a handful of characters in their personal demons um, and sort of Great. their baggage and hangups. Like, I think it is very, very good at underlining a lot of, like, this modern era of animation. It, Like I said, it is very character-heavy. It has, like, very dedicated fandoms to specific characters and relationships. 
uh, particularly the main relationship between um, Blitzo and uh, Stolis, who is like sort of his on again, off again, int love interest. I, I don't even think I have the time to explain all of the intricacies of their relationship, but it's very mm -hmm. complicated and messy in kind of interesting ways that you don't really see depicted in animation. Like it's a very interesting power dynamic, but I digress. It is a show with a lot of lore in terms of the rules of hell, each circle of hell obviously having sort of a boss lead figure. Um, Kesha, Vo it has a lot of like pretty prominent voice actors and notable people. Mm -hmm. um, it has Richard Horvitz, who you would know as Invader Zim. Mm -hmm. It has um, Norman Reedus for a little bit. It has James Monroe Englehart as Osmodius. Um, Alex Brightman, a very popular uh, Broadway performer who was Beetlejuice is in it. Uh, Mara Wilson was in an episode. Um, wow. Yes. And famously, as the finale of uh, season one, uh, Kesha actually appears as Beezlebub, the queen of Glut the gluttony circle. Yes. Wow. Um, but they make it because she's literally a queen bee. Bees. Bees above, oh, which I'm like, okay, that's actually a cute pub. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of like very talented recurring voice actors. It is, every song has a, every episode has a song. Like this era of animation is very music, like music driving animation is very prominent in this era, I feel like. Mm -hmm. um, it is very vibrant. It's very detailed. It has very intricate action scenes where it feels like, I'm like, oh, those poor animators. I'm like, ah, that's why you do like an episode every month or two. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it, it's, very serialized. You really do need to watch all of it, but that's convenient because it's one click away. Right. It's kind of, it's so much of what we've been talking about in inter like bits and pieces, all of these different pieces kind of coming together to make a full series. And yet it's the spinoff series to what's actually, they're actually working on. And I just think that's interesting because again, so much of this is dependent on like, you can take on the big house, but the big house feels like it always wins to a certain extent. Yeah. Like, no, even the fact that all of this has to be on YouTube. YouTube is the only right. place where you can get views. Like, the fact that there are no, there is simply no other meaningful competition to YouTube. So if mm -hmm. you want, you have to play by YouTube's rules. Right. Like, and, like, as an alternate, the other kind of, like, big, um, kind of, like, the other big uh, sort of indie animation thing that's come prominent during this is Lackadaisy, which is a... Based off a comic, it's Prohibition era, but they're all cats. Short version. That's what I quoted at the beginning of this episode. I see, I see. Yeah, that's one that I still need to check out. Like, it has a very, like, again, it's similar, it, it's similar in terms of, uh, like, very heavy on character, very heavy, you know, very heavy on, like, intricate action, uh, incredible color work. But they are trying the other route of crowdfunding. And... Mm. Like, I feel bad because I do feel like crowdfunding has gotten a bit of a stigma because there have been so many, like, kind of failed Kickstarters, especially because so much of, like, internet animation is connected to, like, video game culture, and video game culture is just famous for high-profile disasters in terms of kickstarting. Well, you know, I think I want to say that, like, talking about, like, the idea of lore, I think part of why lore becomes really strong is because it circulates within, like, a very controlled sense of community and I think shows I think indie animation benefits the most from cultivating like community mm. through through crowdfunding through websites like Patreon and things like that um is how is how I I think how a lot of these shows like create like a contained bubble for themselves and then 
sort of like that's kind of the appeal of the lore is being a participant in that community. Yeah, it is interesting. Like, uh, I mean, I guess that is an interesting point. It is like a weird, like sort of double-edged sword of like, crowdsourcing has a stigma to it. But if you're an investor in this, you do have an incentive to like be a part of the community. Yeah. I mean, my God, how many people are still holding on to their damn bored apes because it's a community? But obviously that's a much bleaker side of all of this. Um, yeah, it it is interesting. I And like, it is frustrating that it just feels like, and I guess that's like a kind of a big part of why I wanted to talk about indie animation. It is so often you hear people like, we need to go our own way. We need to make indie animation. It's like, if you wanted to do this, you need to build an infrastructure. It's not as easy as just waking up one day and like, you know, making a cartoon. putting out a hat. Yeah, making a cartoon or like putting out your hat and asking for penny change. Like, right. it's so, like, the discourse around Hell of a Boss and Has Been a Hotel kind of gets so toxic, partly because it's a very LGBTQ heavy series and Vizzy Pop is very online, so it just naturally brings like a lot mm-hmm. of naysayers and people, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, it's it's so interesting that it's like, Indie animation is theoretically in a golden age. It's theoretically in a renaissance, but it's still so compromised because, like, the infrastructure that the animation co- an animation company needs to have is just so damn hard to make. Like, this short, like the this episode alone of um, Lackadaisy cost eighty five thousand dollars. Like, they kickstarted eighty five thousand dollars. It took one hundred and sixty artists. It took three years to finally make. Like. I, I also think a part of this episode is me just underlining, like, y'all really need to appreciate how fucking hard it is to make a single thing of animation. Right. Anything animated. Like, I try, like I'm terrible at animation, and I own that. But, like, to the amount of resources it takes to make something on this scale is so huge. It's like, that is why, that is why like, the studios feel like they have domination over everything. Because it's like... Yeah, Walt Disney spent 10 years building the infrastructure to create an animation company and just kept building on it. We don't have that infrastructure in an indie space, and we might never. I see. Um, And it is frustrating because you want to break free of the... Like, again, as much as we like Disney, I'm like, I want more animation that isn't Disney. I want, uh, like, people to have Mm -hmm. the freedom to not have to go to Disney or DreamWorks to get their dream realized. And while there are more avenues than ever before... The, it is always going to be with a hand tied behind your back because you're just not going to have, like, the pipeline of animation is built for giant companies, unfortunately. More than any, arguably, other, more than most art forms, really. Right, right. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to talk about? Any, like, little things you want to cover? Well, I think what I want to leave our audience with today is, like, you know, I would challenge people to kind of seek out this sort of content more. Um, because mm. even engaging, you know, short of actually putting your dollars toward a project, um, as we've mentioned about how YouTube works, like the your, your engagement there and, and your, um, your viewership um, mm-hmm. does support things like this. So... You know, in you know, amongst all the things that you watch, probably on TV or on a streaming service or even at the theater, um, you know, I, I feel like this is a good practice to to be engaged with, to like seek out 
small animation and actually mm-hmm. think critically about about where it comes from and you know how others engage with it right like as negative nancy as i was there it it should be underlined that like you know the fact that something like hell of a boss or um lackadaisy can exist or digital circus can exist in today's modern sphere is nothing short of a miracle it took a lot of work even to get to this sort of somewhat compromised state like it took a lot of work and a part of that work is engagement a part of that work is teaching people that it is something worth investing their time and artistic skill into and exactly if that's even just a view on your part that matters if it's even just a positive comment that matters and that's like at the end of the day, what makes sort of internet, YouTube, and indie animation special is that it has a the most direct engagement that you can have, like from artist to fan. There's right, no filter exactly. on that. And while that can be bad, it also can be invigorating and motivating and inspirational. Without question, yeah. And until we are drawn as chibly little characters going on a little adventure on your YouTube screens, I, yeah, sure. I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. Have a magical day. Thanks for listening. The Disney Desk is brought to you by Carter and Sydney. Follow us on Twitter at Disney Desk for the latest updates about the show. Want more of the most magical podcast on earth? The Disney Desk is now on Patreon. For exclusive weekly bonus content from us, go to patreon.com slash DisneyDesk and become a patron for as little as $3 a month. Thank you. Jesus Christ, Sydney. <laughs> That's what um, it would be. God. I, you know what one of my weird nostalgic memories is? The dial-up tone, when they got rid of dial-up, I remember AOL and, like, all these computer companies would have ads that were like, let's go on the internet. Okay, click. And the guy would be like, where's the noise? <laughs> really? <laughs>
Yes, that was like a thing. That. They were like marketing that as this huge innovation. Right. Ay, ay, ay. All right. Uh, do you want to talk about SAG first or should I do my thing first? Um, why don't you do your thing first? I don't have that much to say about SAG. Okay. <clears throat> uh, right. I forgot why I was happy we moved to later afternoon. I forget in the morning I'm always stuffy and gross. It is fun to...